Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot, where we are learning leadership lessons from your favorite stories. Hi, I'm Brian Nutwell. And I'm Drew Perot. And we're on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. We're back with part one of Fast Five from the Fast and Furious franchise. We're in a series on map making, and this week we're going to be talking about flipping the map upside down. Flipping the map upside down is an effective technique that allows us to see the world differently. When we see the world differently, it opens up new possibilities and allows us to break previously held constraints. In Fast Five, we see Brian and Dom, as well as new characters like Hobbs, coming together to do what, of course, seems to be impossible. They find themselves cornered in Rio after some jobs gone wrong. They're stuck outside the United States. They have an officer, Hobbs, coming after them. They also have Reyes, who's the leader of the cartel or the local shadow government. Given all the different things that they have converging on them all at once, the only way out is to flip the map upside down. So as we're talking about flipping the script or flipping the map, we want to think about business. How can we flip our business models, our strategies, and our tactics to overcome the barriers that are currently holding us back? Welcome to Wonder Tour. All right, well, this is going to be a fun conversation. I rewatched this movie recently, and it is ridiculous in all of the ways you would expect while spending a lot of time trying really, really hard to subvert your expectations. This is a lot of fun. Of course, Fast Five is where the franchise really converges into the kind of movies they decided they want to make. And in particular, this is a classic heist movie. And so we've got the wide range of colorful characters with unique skill sets. We've got an opponent or, you know, a series of opponents who are just sufficient efficiently menacing and implacable enough to that it makes sense. We've got a ridiculous potential payoff at the end, and we have a whole bunch of impossible things that we have to do between now and then. What struck you about this one, Drew, as, as the franchise in general and this movie in particular? So I think like most people, I was a little bit later to get into the Fast and Furious franchise. You know, I wasn't there from movie one or even two. I remember seeing Too Fast, Too Furious, but I wasn't in on it at that point. I think what it took was kind of all the elements that started to come together and really became pretty cohesive by Fast Five for this to become one of my top 10 franchises of all time. It's the all the different family elements that are coming together here. It's the crazy larger than life heists. Really, it had to transition from being a racing movie to being a heist movie before I was in on it. And so for me, it's really about the characters and how those characters interact together. As with any great heist movie, right? You get this whole crazy montage of all the characters coming together and, you know, they do things that get on each other's nerves or whatever. But it's how those characters work together. And then, of course, you have the most ridiculous part is not the stunts. It's the fact that they managed to get Vin Diesel to play this lead titular role in, in a whole movie franchise. I mean, this dude, by all accounts, should be as flat as can be as a character. I mean, to be honest, he's not a great actor, but he's so much fun. And his interactions with the other characters, it doesn't matter how bad the delivery of the lines are. It doesn't matter that he only has like two different modes of acting, being angry and being like amused. That's it. It doesn't even none of that matters because of how grand the scale is and how the team comes together. 
And I would argue because of how incredibly sincere it is for all the ridiculousness, for all of the physically and logistically impossible things that happen on screen continuously, for all of the awkward plot mechanics, right? It's incredibly sincere. It absolutely loves the things that it loves to the nth degree, and it's very confident about the messages that it wants to tell. And that's fun. The director has a vision, the franchise has a vision, and the actors are well chosen for what they're doing. But you get to play with these huge themes of loyalty and family. And in this one, they play the freedom note pretty hard. And you set up these series of obstacles that the characters have to go through and you just buy into it. So in contrast to you, like I was totally, I was there for the first uh, Fast and Furious movie. I am an old school car enthusiast, like installed a supercharger on my Miata, right? You know, So I very much appreciate the import scene car enthusiasm. And I also recognize as an engineer that nearly everything that happens on screen is ridiculous. And you know, sometimes you're yelling at the screen, no, that's not how it works. That's not the point, right? Super not the point. So again, bringing it back to the business context. I think what one of the things will be fun to talk about here in this first episode is exactly as you said, the flipping the map upside down, the subverting expectations, the taking a challenge that you are presented with, and how do you reinterpret that challenge or look at the world in a different way that exposes different ways of approaching it, exposes easier ways of solving a problem or exposes larger scale ways of approaching a problem. And we see that throughout. I've got my notes here. I've got probably 12 examples where the movie sets up one thing and then solves it in an unexpected way. Isn't that how the world works a little bit? It's not like we can just set the objectives up and knock them down most of the time. A lot of times we're setting them up and then we're having to subvert expectations or subvert the narrative or flip the map upside down in order to be able to progress the story. Yeah, I think that it's, um, I, I know, you know, your personality and Derek's and, and, you know, and mine, our work experience, we're often looking for those big or thorny or impossible problems. We're looking for that rush of the new solution to a thing. That's not necessarily universal. Like there's a lot of people out there working really hard at a known problem where it's just important to do the same thing precisely over and over again. Like that's really important. We need a lot of that in the world. But those are known problems with known solutions. The, the solution to that is to be organized and disciplined and work hard. What this movie kind of plays with and the thing that we like to talk about on this podcast is what if you have a problem that doesn't have a known solution? What if it's too thorny or too deep rooted or non-obvious? What are some techniques you could use to potentially thrive in that environment? And that's the fun stuff. You know, how do, how do we solve the impossible problem? I'll pull a couple anecdotes from the movie here just to kind of talk about some examples, right? One of them is the classic innovation technique of like, come up with ridiculous ideas and they may spark a more practical idea. So in the middle of the movie, jumping ahead right there, trying to figure out how they can get through the underground parking garage to the safe without anybody noticing their, you know, where their cars are. And they're trying all the different cars and different driving techniques and whatever, and they can never quite do it. They can never get it where the cameras can't see them underneath. And then the Han character, who's sort of a Obi-Wan equivalent in this series, you know, the, the wizened observer, he's like, well, all we need is an invisible car. And everybody laughs and you're like, oh, yeah, that would be easier, right? And so it's like, what if we just steal a bunch of police cars and the cameras will look at us and not notice that we're out of place? So, you know, again, it's a ridiculous comment that converges very quickly to like, oh, there's actually a practical thing we could do that would be functionally equivalent to being invisible is we'll just match into what everybody expects. And then we, you know, we can go about our business. So 
and that's not I know we like to think about things in terms of outside the box and it's just a really really treaded way to talk about things so we don't want on wonder tour to be going that direction usually but when we're finding the edges of the map or like when you're trying to chart our way through a map or in this way like we have mental models of how things work and we're just racking our brains for a way to make these models connect together that's going to allow us to get past this problem it is sometimes that easy as to say okay well what have we fixed in our models if we could change some of the things that we fixed, the hard constraints, then we could come up with a different solution. Like you said, within their current kind of convergent problem solving that they were doing, they had fixed that we have to be dealing with a car. We're just gonna have a fast, small car that can get through a parking garage. So you have this object being the car and you have these attributes that they're trying to tune on the vehicle or on the object to make it be able to fit into this puzzle. But the answer then is, okay, well, what if we broke that constraint? What if the object was invisible? What if we changed one of the attributes to break a rule of the universe that we know? Yeah, if you're if you're you're trying to solve a problem and you're working with your known tools and you're not asymptotically approaching a solution, then it's time to step back and diverge. Okay, what would be a what would be a, a crazier solution or what would could we break one of the rules? And uh, I think you called this out in our pre-discussion, but yeah, probably the movie does a really good job of setting that up right at the beginning, right? The very first heist that they go on on the train, they've got kind of a ridiculous plan that involves driving next to a train and cutting the train open and pulling the cars out. But they've got this fun little moment where they've got cars longitudinally on these on this uh, train carriage, and they pull them sideways out of the train onto their flatbed truck. So like cars are only supposed to go forward and back, but we're going to move them sideways because that's the unexpected solution. That right there, just that little moment, kind of gives you a sense of what movie you're in for. Not only is it ridiculous action that's got a little bit of double crossing, like what's actually, what's the mixed motivations going on here? You know, we're going to break some of the laws of physics, but also we're just going to solve our problems by doing things not in the way you would expect. That little moment's like, okay, we have a pretty good idea what kind of movie we're watching now, and the rest of it's just going to be enjoy the ride and see how they subvert our expectations. Yeah, and I think that's the perfect tie-in to business. And I mean, I want to have a little bit of a discussion about this because to me and you and people like Derek, we are always looking for that subverting expectation solution. When we can do that, that's when we usually see transformation. And so we're really keen on those type of solutions and those type of strategies. But in reality, in order to keep the machine churning that is a corporation, a lot of times it's not profitable to subvert expectations, or at least like you need to choose your times that you're going to subvert the narrative or subvert the map of you know what the known models are and being able to figure out when and where to do that is tough because every time we decide to subvert the traditional map we take on risk right and so when we're trying to accomplish big things usually we want to de-risk those things as much as possible but of course this is a fast and furious movie and so we're doing the opposite here we're okay with taking big risks because the reward is big you know, the channel to make it through to the end is narrow, but that's okay because we have our superheroes that are going to help us to navigate that and take us right through. I mean, I just want to almost want to have a conversation about really what is the frame up in business for when we should even be willing to take those risks or to flip the map upside down. And maybe the, the right spot to start here is with our what if moment. What do you think, Brian? 
Yeah, sure. Because otherwise, I'll start riffing on your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we can come back to it after we which, bring up which, the what which if. Is let where me just we're ask you. Yeah, what, so. yeah, let me just ask you the what if, and then you can take it from there. All right, sounds like fun. Let's do it. All right, so we have this moment where Dom and crew are at the drag race or the car show, and they're there with all the the Brazilian homies that they've been hanging out with, that they've been racing with, and getting cars off of so that they can pull off their invisible car scheme. But they draw out Hobbs to the show they do it for a purpose so talk to me about that purpose but then also talk to me about why do they do that and what if they don't draw Hobbs out to that car show and they just instead stay undercover and kind of just operating outside of where Hobbs can see yeah this is a fun little subverting expectations scene but it's also the structure of this movie is that Hobbs is the kind of the the first antagonist, the first boss, right? He's the he's the immediate obstacle. And then Reyes is sort of the mega antagonist hiding in the background. He's the emperor. And so they're aware that they're being pursued, that they've got this agent in Rio who's trying to hunt them down. And so rather than just trying to stay away from them altogether, they're like, oh, we're just going to go park our well-known cars out in public and wait for him to show up. And in the process of doing this, what they do is they sort of provoke a confrontation before Hobbs is maybe ready for it. Like he thinks he's just going to roll in with his five guys and their machine guns and take everybody into custody. And so they, there's two things that they do. One is that like, hey, you didn't. What, what it points out is that Hobbs doesn't understand the map very well, right? He's very focused on his goal. He's doing his one thing, but he hasn't really taken time to sense the environment and realize that he doesn't necessarily have the support of all the people in this place that he's just rolled into. Everybody in the parking lot pulls a gun and suddenly he's outnumbered. But also they're forcing Hobbs to expose himself to come out and like be there. And while they're busy having a little, you know, macho stare down with the testosterone permeating the air between Dom and Hobbs, they're putting a tracker on Hobbs's car so they can figure out where he is. So they're sort of leveling the playing field from an information standpoint. So obviously the confronting your business enemies with guns drawn is maybe not the lesson we want to take away from this. But the risking a little bit of yourself, risking an exposure, risking a confrontation on your terms, on turf of your choosing, so that you can draw some information out, so that you can understand the playing field and so that you can maybe have an opportunity to understand better what the challenge is or what your opponent's doing. That's a thing you could potentially do. That's a real technique. Partly the reason it works is because they're thinking farther down the road. You know, Dom and his crew are thinking farther down the road of what they're trying to accomplish. They're not trying to get to get away. They're trying to get to get this person out of the way so I can go do my real goal, where Hobbs is just sort of laser focused on his job. And so he gives away information without being aware. Yeah, I think if we want to relate this back to business, I love what you said about you don't want to confront your quote unquote business enemies or maybe your detractors or naysayers with guns drawn. But what you can do is so like I think one way that people normally, including myself, think about it is well, I want to come to center with that group or I want to convert them to my side. Sometimes that's necessary. But other times that type of an approach of seeing the options, let's go to a little bit game theory here, seeing the options as more binary of either I win and I get my way, they win, they get their way, or we come to center is not necessarily, while those kind of are the end outcomes, the way that we get to those outcomes is not so clear. So I think to frame it instead as we can gain information by utilizing the map to our advantage. Like you said, Brian, right? We can create a spot on the map that's maybe a safe spot to come into, have a discussion, learn about our opponent or learn about this other stakeholder. And it doesn't have to come to a resolution after that. It doesn't lead the movie to its resolution necessarily. It's just one tactic that allows the team to, like you said, they're not even getting ahead off this. They're just catching up a little bit to where Hobbs is at. 
Right. And this can happen, right? If you if you provoke the confrontation on your terms with your team backing you up, then at least the opposing side or the person you're trying to convince or the, you know, the, the competitor, whoever it is, might, you know, might say something. At least they'll tell you like, oh, they revealed, oh, this is how they're approaching the problem. Oh, this is what they think their advantage is. Oh, this is what they, you know. So you can absolutely pull this off, not just with misdirection, but also just with being, you know, finding out more about how the person on the other side of the table thinks. And that maybe that allows you to come to center or maybe it allows you to avoid them or attack them from a different angle in the future. Um, yeah, and sometimes we see this in heists by leaking information too. It's a different type yeah. of a tactic that you can use, right? Yeah, real world business example. This is totally probably more rumor than anything else, but you probably aware of the um, the Airbus A380, like the big super jumbo plane that they developed, you know, 25 years ago, launched, sold some fewer number of them they expected and finally discontinued. So it was intended to be, we're going to take the known way of doing business, big airplanes, and we're going to make them bigger because we think there's going to be these couple of these specific long haul routes that we can make extra money off of because we'll just fly as many people as possible in one shot back and forth. So back in the 90s, a friend of mine actually left a job and hired into to Boeing to work on the 737X, which was intended to be the A380 competitor. So a super jumbo bigger than 747. So I may have said that wrong, the 747X. So they were going to build an extra large jumbo jet to compete with the Airbus that was also in development at the time. And my friend worked on that project for about six months and then was laid off as they discontinued the project. And at the time, the story going around inside of Boeing was that Boeing had never intended to build that plane at all. But they put just enough energy into it to convince Airbus to make a huge investment and to go after it. And they're like, yeah, we've decided that that's not profitable, so we're done. And they just walked away. But they were thinking down the road, like, we don't actually think this is a good idea, but we may be able to bluff them into doing it anyway. Oh, that's so. a great. That's kind of like the leaked information, although that's a little bit of a bluff plus leaked information. I mean, it, yeah, this is why people love poker. I'm not a huge poker guy, but it just game theory is like crystallized in poker, essentially, as yeah, I understand but it's, it. It's, you know, but that the whole idea of like, yeah, come to the table just to get the other person to come to the table and maybe reveal some information. Anyway, whether or not it was true, it was it was a fun story, but it was totally plausible because that stuff happens. That is a technique is to subvert the expectations by, you know, acting as if you're going to do one thing. And then at the end of the day, if you get your eyes farther down the road, you may be able to pull something off. So that, well, I think that, sharing the map is the critical thing. It's what you share of your map. So to create those confrontations, and I don't mean confrontation in a, like a, you know, you're in an all out war. I just right. mean when there's going to be conflicting viewpoints in the room or in the virtual meeting or whatever. Managing that messaging is the most critical part to be able to, number one, kind of to be the chair of that meeting or to call the meeting. There's an advantage inherently in that because you can control the narrative of what's going to be shared. Obviously, somebody else can come in with a power play and try to trump you. That's a whole nother different movie that we can talk about. <laughs> but to be able to set up the narrative and then to be able to bring clear messaging, right? You might have a strategy deck that's 100 slides long or whatever, right? You might have a narrative that's 100 pages long. But what you end up bringing, you probably only need to bring five or six pages to that one hour meeting or whatever. We strategically select what we're sharing of the narrative. We're not going to share the most radical things with the naysayers. We're working them towards understanding what are they willing to accept? What aren't they willing to accept? You know, what's in it for them? What are their main objectives? It's not even just that sometimes. He's not just learning about the CIA. Is the Hobbs part of the CIA? I, I don't even know. Yeah. It's, it's, we'll just say the, the pseudo-CIA. Yeah, we're not even worried about the CIA in this moment. Dom is trying to gather information specifically on Hobbs. He's trying to understand how does Hobbs operate and what is he doing here in Rio? 
gaining right. that information on that person and how their map works. You're learning about their map. You're providing a little piece of your map so that you can get a larger piece of their map back. All right. So, okay, perfect transition, right? Then, so I want to take this to our bigger moment for this first episode, right? Which is that that whole thing was just to get Hobbs out of the way, right? Like, okay, great. Now we've got a little bit of air cover. We know where he is. We can work around. But that was to get to, we got to do the first piece of the heist. And the first piece of the heist is a step back, right? In this movie, it's like, all right, there's whatever, $100 million spread around Rio. We can't possibly hit all of those safe houses. You know, we can't hit 10 safe houses and get 11 million to whatever, $10 million out of each one. Like, we're not going to be able to pull that off. We're going to hit one and they're going to know we're coming. So now we're in game theory. Great. What are they going to do if they know we're coming? All right. So now we need to make sure that they do the thing that we want. And so what, what Dom comes up with, what the team comes up with is they're going to hit the first safe house. And rather than try to get a small win out of it, they're going to try to get the biggest leverage they can for the desired outcome. And so they show up and they hit the safe house and they put a $10 million on a cart and they set fire to it. And they take their masks off and say, hey, look, it's us. We're robbing you. And you go tell your boss that this is who did it. Right. And so they're foregoing the small win. Right. You know, they could have taken $10 million and they each of them have a million dollars and they scatter around the world and just try to get away. But what they did was they took a small loss of like, we're not going to take this money at all because what it's going to be is the catalyst for what we really want is the expected outcome, the overreaction. And the expected outcome in, in the terms we're talking about is bundling the objectives. We had an impossible map. We had 10 things that we couldn't do all at the same time. But by doing this one thing, we're going to bundle those 10 things into we're going to get rid of one of them and the other nine are all going to be in one place. And we can solve one problem. We can come up with one ridiculous solution for one problem more easily than we can come up with nine ridiculous solutions. And so sort of rewriting those objectives by doing the game theory thing of we're going to take a loss and expose information so that, in this case, Reyes, the mega mega antagonist, overreacts and pulls all of his money into the one place that it's supposed to go. But you get um, to rewrite the map. It's brilliant, right? Right. To be able and, to cheat, right. essentially, because you're right. not you're almost cheating in the game because you're not playing by the written rules of the game. Because technically the map still exists. If you're just looking at a map and you had perfect information, all those storehouses where he's keeping his money still exist. But by your rewriting Reyes's map for him, whether it's a accurate map, his new map is worse than his old map. But by flipping the map upside down for a minute, like you said, by burning the money instead of stealing it, because if they steal the money, he's going to keep it all separated. But if they burn the money, he's like, oh, crap, they're crazy. And it sends a shock to the system. And instead, it forces him to rethink his map. And he says, no, I want everything under maximum security. These guys are nuts. They're just trying to burn me to the ground. I just need right. as much protection between my prized possession being my $100 million and them as possible. Well, and I didn't really think about this before, but all of these plays, the drawing Hobbs out to the car show, the burning the money, the buying the safe and importing it, all of these plays are gaining information plays, right? They're all spending time and money and sacrificing a little bit to get a better understanding of the map, right? And so what they do is not only do they get all the objectives bundled in one place, but they didn't know where they were going to go. They had people ready to watch, right? We burned the money and now we're just waiting to see what they do and we find out where they're going to put all the money. So they now have a much clearer picture of the landscape. So then the next thing they do is we're going to send Roman in with his face and his shtick and his like, hey, you're going to let me put this thing in the evidence locker. And of course, he's playing a con game, but they end up with a remote control car camera inside the inside the police station and they get an image of the vault and now they know what kind of vault it is. And so they can buy a vault and mess with it. And then they're like, oh, but we need a handprint. 
all of these things, like again, the subterfuge at the at the beach scene is just to get Reyes's handprint, another piece of information that they need to solve the heist. And so Reyes is playing defense the whole time. Hobbs is playing offense, but he only has one objective and doesn't bother studying the landscape. And Dom and Brian and the rest of the team are building the map. Oh, man. I love it when it comes together. It's just like concentric circles. It's just like a good heist. All the information kind of converges on, for us, a meta-level map of what we're dealing with here. So we started by thinking about how are we flipping the map? And I think what we're realizing here is that there's multiple purposes for flipping the map. And sometimes you can accomplish them all at once. When you flip the map, you get information about the map. Like you, let's just say you walk into a meeting, you know, sometimes you don't need to be as obvious as to say, well, like the sky is red and they're like, no, it's not, it's blue. And yeah, because that's not going to gain you a whole lot of information about something. But you can walk into the meeting and say, well, and this is the business strategy. This is the priority of the business strategy. And somebody might come back, you know, sales might come back and say, well, no, it's not. The priority of the business strategy is this. I had this happen. Somebody was telling me the other day about some middle management that were kind of not being very clear on the strategy. And this was, you know, in a weird setting and company and stuff like that. So it might not apply to most people's companies, but I suspect it applies to some where they were saying, well, I thought the strategy was this. I thought the vision was that. And the middle management was saying like, no, that's not what it is at all. Uh, actually, it's this thing over here. And while that caused a lot of controversy, of course, that's why somebody was sharing this story with me. In the end, it kind of goes back to, well, the map of the grassroots versus the map of the middle management was completely different. But so how can then if you have a vision for flourishing and you think there's a path to it by flipping the map or by providing even just information about a fictitious map, just like Dom kind of does to Hobbes to some extent, <laughs> you gain an information advantage on on them. They just openly share information with you that otherwise they were definitely not going to share with you. And then in best case scenario, like with Reyes, you can totally rewrite Reyes's version of the map and have him bundle all the objectives all in one storehouse for you. Yeah, so I like the idea that the whole approach here is to spend as much time as possible learning the environment, learning the map, and influencing the map before you start to actually go try to do the thing. I had a great conversation about innovation a couple years ago with a gentleman who used a kind of a railroad building analogy. It's like, if you're going to build a railroad across the mountains, right, across the U.S. and through the, through the Rockies, you don't just start blasting your way through things, right? You send scouts first to say, like, where are the possible places that we might be able to send a railroad? And let's look at all our options and pick one that looks good. And then we're going to send some surveyors and we're going to actually measure it and we're going to be able to make a pretty good plan because I have a much better idea of what kind of railroad we're going to build. And then we're going to send the people in to blow the rocks out of the way and hammer spikes into the ground and actually lay the railroad, right? But there's this stage of building up to it. Whereas if you just try to go do it right now, like Hobbes would have just tried to blast his way through the mountain. Right? Like he's not he's not making any plans. Like he's not doing anything real, real complicated. He's just nose to the ground, like trying to follow. And he's got other failure modes as a leader that we'll talk about in the second episode here. But he's not trying to build a map or like he's not zooming out enough to understand the context of what he's accomplishing. Yeah, he's not thinking in terms of models and maps. Instead, he's thinking in terms of the chase. That's right. kind of his character and his role that he plays there. He gets led around the map instead of being able to define the map, despite the fact that he's in a position of having superior power and superior information. Yeah. All right. That was, that's really cool. I really I like where that went, and I like thinking about it in terms of gaining information. I think that that's an unexpected package of lessons to learn from this ridiculous of a movie. But of course, The Fast and Furious is not about getting all the technical details exactly right. Fast and Furious is, at its core, a movie about relationships and emotions and driving cars really fast and things blowing up. 
So in episode two, I think we're going to circle back around and talk a little bit more about the family elements of this franchise and this movie in particular. That's the thing I'm most excited for. Everything we just went through there, talking about flipping the map in order to get information or to be able to rewrite somebody else's map. That's super valuable in terms of business. And so as we take this, we'll continue to talk about the team element and the business element. But I think the personal and individual element and how that ties together here, like you said, that's what Fast and Furious is about at its core. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. We'll come back next time for Fast Five Part Two, where we will amp up our suspension of disbelief for spectacular action sequences. And we will further demonstrate that, as always, character is destiny.